Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah. This morning we'll be reading from uh, the ESV translation. If you're on a device and you want to switch to that, you'll just be able to follow along much more easily. We'll be looking at Nehemiah 10 today, but we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 9 and verse 38 where we left off last week. It's hard to believe, but we only have, uh, we only have three weeks left in Nehemiah, this series that we started back in January. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I know I have. I know we have as a leadership team. Uh, I think it's, it's just come at a really uh, great and crucial time, I feel like, in the life of our church. And I, uh, I'm really thankful for the ways that God has been using it. Man, just want to give you a a quick recap for those of you that may be joining us for the first time this morning, give you kind of some insight as to why we are where we are today and where we're at today. Ezra and Nehemiah is a story that is not meant to point to the glory of Ezra or Nehemiah or the people of Israel, but one like all of scripture that points to God and his glory and his faithfulness to his people. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, have gone in and out of captivity for much of the Old Testament. And in the storyline of Ezra and Nehemiah, they've been in captivity for nearly 150 years straight. God had allowed these things to happen to his people because of their sin and their constant turning from him and the covenant that he had made with them. The captivity Israel is in throughout these books began with the Babylonian Empire under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar in and around 590 BC when the Babylonians destroyed the city of Israel, including its walls and its temple and its gates, which is why those things are being rebuilt throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. And in 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire was taken captive by the Persians, who are the ruling authority during the entirety of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we've seen God's faithfulness specifically and how he has worked in the hearts of his people, of leaders and kings and governments to bring about his plans to rebuild the temple, to restore the city's walls and to renew his chosen people in their land. In these books, we also see Israel's history of failure to obey God's commands, but that's, that's not all we see. We also see, as Ronnie preached last week, that even when, right, even when his people fail and they grievously sin against him, he is faithful to call them back to himself and to, when they cry out for mercy, to forgive them in his goodness and in his faithfulness, he delights to show mercy because he keeps the promise of his covenant. That's exactly what the people of Israel had done in last week's text. They recounted all of God's faithfulness to them throughout their history of disobedience and confessed the many ways that they had sinned against God, which leads us now to what they're doing in today's passage, where we will see them renewing the covenant and committing themselves again to obey God's holy commands. Three things that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the covenant God made. 
We're gonna look at the covenant that Israel renews and we're gonna look at the covenant that Jesus fulfills. So the covenant God made, the covenant Israel renews and the covenant that Jesus fulfills. So let's pick up Nehemiah 9:38. there. Follow along with me as I read. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. I'm going to take a hard pass, all right, on reading all these names off and just sounding ridiculous because I will. But I will say two things about these people. Other than Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and Daniel, I'm not actually sure that any of these people, people's parents actually like them. And I'm really sorry if any of you have named your kid Ginnathon in here, all right? Sorry for you and I'm sorry for your kid. Secondly, and more seriously, this is simply a list of leaders who have committed to signing on behalf of all those that are renewing their covenant with God. Obviously, not all of the people of Israel could actually pen their name on this document. All right, but this, this is a significant amount of people that are signing on their behalf. And the sheer amount shows us two things. It shows us the seriousness that they have for this covenant. And it also shows us through the individual names that it's personal, it's relational. All right, so scan over that list of names and pick up with me in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So we're gonna stop there for a moment because this should, man, this should raise a question for us, which is what exactly are they committing to, right? What are the commandments, the rules, and the statutes that the Israelites are committing to obey? If you remember, from last week's text, we saw that in their acts of confession and repentance in Nehemiah 9.3, you can look there if you want, they also stood to read from the book of God's law, the Torah, all right, the first five books of the Bible. And it tells us that they did this for a quarter of the day, a quarter of the day. And what's contained in those books and the reason it took so long is 613 laws, commandments, and statutes given by God to the people of Israel in covenant with them. 613, this is weighty. This commitment is weighty, but so was their sin and the rightful judgment that had come from it. And they realized that these laws and these statutes and these commands were actually for their good and for ultimately for the glory of God. So picking up in verse 30, what we see is not a list of the only things that they are committing to or even a list of any additional things, but rather some of the specific things that Israel was struggling with in their covenant to God. So verse 30, pick up again with me. 
says we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34, we the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. Verse 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. One could make the argument uh, that we live in what is easily maybe the most non-committal time in existence, or at least a time that maybe has the most opportunities to show it. All right? We are generally a people who don't like commitment. All right, are being reminded that we made a commitment. And so even the commitments that we do make, we don't like to be reminded of very often. It's the reason that we have things that auto-renew, all right, and automatic bill pay for all of those recurring bill payments that we have each month. It's the reason that we try out every single seven-day free trial on our Amazon Prime accounts, all right? Because we think it's not really committing to anything, right? It's, it's free. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna try it. It's free except if you're like me and you forget to uh, cancel that thing before it renews. Man, we, we don't like commitment. And those are just commitments of contract. Those are not even commitments of covenant. One of the main differences is that covenants have relational ties to them and contracts do not, all right? Like, I don't have a covenant with Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, all right? I don't think he... I don't think he really gives a rip how our relationship is doing every year when my Amazon account, wait for it, auto-renews. Contracts are somewhat common to us and we struggle with commitment, but covenant is somewhat of a foreign word for us. Really, other than when we are talking about marriage, it's not even a word that comes up 
very often. But it was not a foreign word throughout the Old Testament. They were well versed in understanding what a covenant was and what it meant. So what is a covenant? Here's what theologian J.I. Packer says a covenant is. He says a covenant in scripture is a solemn agreement negotiated or unilaterally imposed that bind the parties to each other in permanent, defined relationships with specific promises and obligations on both sides. Because we are a people who struggle with commitment and deal mostly in contracts, we tend to want to infer those things onto God. But I want you to know this morning, God is not a God who struggles with commitment and he is not a God of contract, but a God of covenant. And he has been a God of covenant since the very beginning. And he and he alone is the one who establishes his terms of his covenant. So I want to look at that this morning. I want to look at the covenant promises that God has made. Turn with me in your Bibles. Genesis, very first book of the Bible, go Genesis 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 15. In Genesis 2, we see that after God had created the heavens and the earth, He created man in his image and he gave to him a place to maintain and to work. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the very first covenant God makes and it comes through his commandment. God tells Adam, look at all my creation, right? Look at all I have made and declared good. It is for you to take pleasure in that you may enjoy me. Obey this command because it leads to your joy and to life. And then he commands, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In theological terms, this is called God's covenant of works, which when obeyed lead to joy, but when disobeyed ultimately leads to judgment. And what we see in Genesis 3 is, that, is what we call the fall or original sin. Adam and Eve, they disobey God's covenant command. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which what God said is that on the day they did, they would surely die, but instead, God shows them mercy. And although sin does usher death into the world, it does not overcome them that day. He spares them, and he not only shows them that he is a God of mercy, but he establishes with them his very first covenant of grace. He gives them indirectly a promise of a savior. He does this in Genesis 3.15 when he tells Satan this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What God is promising in this covenant of grace is that through the lineage of Adam and Eve will come a Messiah, all right? A savior who will defeat Satan, conquer their sin and what their sin has now 
produced, which is death. This covenant of grace, it carries through Noah in Genesis 9, 8, which says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This continues through Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when God tells Abraham to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's Abraham's faith then in this promised blessing that we see in Genesis 15, 6 was counted to him as righteousness before God. And so through Abraham, God fulfills his promise to make a great nation and make for himself a redeemed people of his own possession, which is the people of Israel, the ones God covenants with through the Mosaic law, all right, the commandments that he gave to Moses for them. And these are the very people who are renewing their covenant in our text today. I know that was a lot of history But what I want you to see in all that history is that this is about the covenant God makes and his ability to keep it, right? It's about his choosing and his redeeming, not Israel's and not ours. This is what Deuteronomy 7, 6 says about the people of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Israel's commitment to God's covenant in today's text was not making them more redeemed. God had already declared them as his redeemed people. So then what's the point? What's the point of their renewing the covenant? What's the point of the law, period? When I was younger, there's something that no matter how hard I tried, it always seemed to just happen to me. All right. Uh, At least that's how it kind of felt to a 16-year-old boy with a souped-up pickup and a very heavy foot. All right. I I was constantly getting pulled over, guys. Like right here in this town, got to see these dudes often. Told my wife I didn't do, wouldn't do this, but I'm going to. The reason Ashland sparkles the way that it does is Matt Miller's great. It's not because of him. Scott Long, all right? <laughs> Scott Long pulling out of Taco Bell on Claremont, 2012. Scott Long coming down Center Street, 2011. Scott Long on just about every back road that's in Ashland. Constantly getting pulled over. And it was... Man, it was costly. I mean, not just the tickets, but my insurance is going through the roof. My dad is all angry at me because I was 16 on his insurance. And every time I would get pulled over, I would tell my dad, 
I'm not going to do it again. All right. I promise you can believe me this time. I swear I am not going to do it again. Usually for about three to four months, I would keep that promise. But then lo, lo and behold, another ticket, another fine, another broken promise. Now, when I was 18 or 19, I got a ticket that was actually going to cost me more than money. I had received so many points against me that I was actually going to cost me my license. And so I had to go stand before a judge. Now, I did not want to lose my license, all right? So full confession, I lied to the judge, told her that I was not guilty, and I did just about everything in my power to prove that I was not guilty, but I was. There was no, there was no denying this. There was no getting around it. I was guilty. I deserved to lose my license. I had repeatedly broken the law. What was going to help me in that moment? What was going to be the thing, if anything, that would keep me from the punishment that I rightfully deserved? All right, was it for me to, you know, just say, hey, I know, I know that I've broken this promise before, but this time you can believe me. I won't do it again. Was it for the judge to say, hey, I don't know what to tell you. The speed limit sign said 35 is what it is. That's the law, right? Just, you should have looked at the law. The only thing that was going to save me is if that judge somehow took pity on me. And to my great joy, she did. The law was there for my good, but I had broken it, right? It was never going to be able to save me from the punishment that I rightfully deserved. Instead, all it could do was reveal the very reason that I needed saving, right? In the same way, Israel's commitment to the law that they had broken was not going to ultimately save them, but it was revealing to them more fully their need for a savior. The, prom the problem here was not that Israel just needed to try harder, all right? Just, just keep renewing the covenant. Just keep being more committed to the law. The problem is what the law truly revealed, which is Israel's perpetual inability to keep it because their hearts are fundamentally broken and unable to. They are unable to not sin, not only Israel, but all of humanity. So then what's the answer? What's the answer for us? Pastor and theologian Wallace P. Benn says, what Israel's constant failures show us is the need for a new redemption and covenant if God's people are to be truly his and he theirs. This the covenant promises of God made to Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Israel all of the Mosaic law, the commandments and the statutes and the rules given by the covenanting God of grace for their good, for their peace, for their flourishing and his fellowship with him were all shadows of the fullness of the promise that would come to us as God himself in Christ, his son. Why would God do that? Why would God do do that. We read it this morning. It's on your bulletins. Ephesians 2.7. So that in the coming ages, he might show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, not the law, in Christ. Not us, in Christ. God has done what we could never do. Romans 8, three through four, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all God's covenantal promises to his chosen people and the new covenant for those who believe. Luke twenty two twenty says this. This is Jesus' words when he implements communion for the first time with his disciples on the night before his death. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And for those who believe on the perfect sacrifice of Christ, that blood both satisfies the rightful wrath of God towards us and all of our sin against him, all of our failures that the law reveals and it provides us with the ability by God's very spirit to obey him. This promise came by God through his prophet in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The only reason we can obey is through the spirit, not in our own strength, but because of Christ through the spirit. And it's this very spirit who seals for us the promise of redemption now. And he provides us with not only the ability to resist sin and walk in God's ways, but the desire to actually want to as he carries us in the fullness of what will be completed in the future when one day what we have inherited through Christ will be fully revealed and we will sin no more. All this for the very glory of our God of covenant. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what's the point of this passage for us today? Is the application here for us to, uh, to just do better? Man, is it, let's just agree with one another this morning that we're just gonna be, we're just gonna be better people, right? Let's just, let's tighten our belts, pull up our boots, and let's just do it. Or is it another chance to view the wonders and the mystery of God's grace and faithfulness in Christ. In case you're wondering, it's that last one. Here's the good news I have for you this morning. 
Outside of Christ, you have absolutely no ability to please God. All right, you have no long-standing power to keep his commands or stand in anything but rightful judgment before him. You can't do it. I can't do it. I thought you said this was good news. It is. Because of the cross. Because of the cross, there is hope. And there's freedom from that rightful judgment. Pastor and evangelist Rico Tai says, no one will face the eternal judgment of God who hasn't trampled over the cross of Christ. This passage is not about a people who can keep covenant with their God. It's about a God who keeps covenant with his people. And his promise rests not on how well his people keep that covenant, but on the faith that he gives them to trust that he will keep his. And in Christ, he has. This is the good news of the gospel, that Christ keeps covenant for you. That if your sinfulness has been revealed to you and you have confessed and repented of it and trusted in Christ as your perfect sacrifice, savior, and king, You are bound to him, held by him, made righteous through him and him alone. Nothing more and nothing less. That is really good news. And it's the news that our God of covenant has for us today and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fulfillment of all your covenant promises in Christ. He is our redemption, our hope, our peace, and your tangible grace and mercy poured out for us. Remind us this morning of his perfect atoning sacrifice. May he be made more lovely to us that our satisfaction would rest more fully on you for our joy and for your glory. Father, for those this morning that are in Christ and are struggling with thoughts of condemnation, I pray that you would remind them that they are freed from it and that they would remember that today. For those who do not yet know you, I pray that you would do a work in them now that through your spirit and the gospel declared in your word, you would illuminate their hearts And open their eyes to the glory of Christ and your great faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.